really is good to see you guys. I was really touched by your concern, I see, that you showed because you thought something might be wrong. So um, to give you a chance to show how genuine you, all of you, can take Suzanne and I out for breakfast after <laughs> <laughs> whatever you'd like to do. It genuinely is good to see you guys here. <clears throat> I hope Thanksgiving went well, and, and I hope things go well leading to Christmas. It's, it's a hectic time, and, and I believe underneath the surface it's always a little bit disturbing because the expectations go through the roof. It's never easy. Um, any, any prayers? Any prayer requests this morning? Lots happening. <coughs> In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, um, again for the gift of our lives and for the gift of yourself, particularly at Mass, for those who went. Um, looking back, we give special thanks for Thanksgiving. Um, sadly, too many of us forget um, what Thanksgiving is about a group of pilgrims, all Protestants, all Puritans, left Europe and England and went to the Netherlands in the hopes of being able to live out their beliefs because where they were they couldn't. Um, horrible persecutions going on in England. Um, people had to believe a certain thing or they would be persecuted. What a great courage. And then left the Netherlands and even Europe, I mean, they turned their back on the civilized world. They couldn't be closer to what you call us all to do, to renounce the world. To give everything they had, their possessions, their homes, um, to go to this country come when there was nothing here, as far as they knew, um, in order to make a new world, to build a city on a hill, so that they could worship you. We still fight for that freedom today. Um, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Debbie. Um, we still fight for that freedom today. Um, um, people are so often persecuted today for their Christian beliefs. Not surprising. Um, I'm asking a special grace for all of us because we're at the opposite end of the spectrum. The pilgrims had nothing and we have everything. In lots of ways, it spoils us, makes us soft. Um, we don't want to give up things. It's awful. Um, um, strengthen us in our efforts to renounce ourselves, to put things away, um, to not let things have the hold on us that too often they do, so that we can um, close the distance between our loves and your own, to love more fully the way you do. Help us to do that, please and help us to find the strength to do that in the work that we're doing together. Let a blessing be upon everyone here. Um, everybody here wouldn't be here if they didn't love learning. Um, amazing. Um, let the amazement continue in their hearts, all of us, carry it forward. We were never meant to stop learning. Strengthen us in our efforts, always with the hope that as, as we learn, we'll find a strength to change our wills, to make our wills better. You call us to love, it means 
changing what we do with our own wills. Easy to do our own wills. Too often we do because we're selfish. Help us to do those things that you've asked of us, that ask us to give our wills to those things we don't do so easily. Let that blessing be upon all of us. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. <coughs> Can everybody turn to the John Dunn poem? Do you have another copy? Hmm? Do you have another copy? I don't, Doug. Oh, here. We do. It's not there, Lois. It's, oh. it's, it wasn't, it's not included in the Dunn packet. You need one? I'm good, thanks. Thanks, but... Um, remember, John Dunn was an Anglican priest. He, he had been Catholic and converted during the Reformation. He was, uh, um, um, the, I think the Bishop of Canterbury. He was a bishop in Canterbury, I think. Had a, had a major position as an Anglican. But he converted. I mean, he was like so many people, um, Bach, Dunn, and others, who, who really carried a Catholic sensibility because that's how they were raised. Um, but converted and went on to um, become, I think, one of the great, <coughs> maybe the greatest love poet who's ever written. If you've read John Dunn's poems, you know that nobody, nobody, nobody in the English language has written more poems on love than Dunn. And he expresses the whole range of man's emotions. He, he, he really, he, he shows how selfish we can be, um, how mean, mm, how vengeful we can be. In his, you, you remember, the lyric opens the interior. We, in the lyric, we go into the interior. Um, in drama, we look at it outside. In narrative, we do both. Um, somebody's telling a story about somebody else, and we get both inside and outside in narrative. But typically, in the lyric, we go inside. So we enter the interior of another, and in some sense, learn to enter the interior of ourselves. We see ourselves. And the good poets um, show us bad emotions and good ones. And um, Dunn's written more poems on a healthy love, a well-ordered love, than any poet I know, even Shakespeare. <coughs> so he's a really important poet. And look, just a side, an additional note here. Because he stands where he does there at the beginning of the 17th century, he's right on the verge of modernity. So what he's doing is giving expression to the kind of love that was the inheritance of the Christian Middle Ages. He, he, he had a great theological mind. He had the scholastics behind him, Thomas and Duns Scotus and Augustine and everybody. He, I think he would have read Boethius. That was all a part of his sensibility, deeply Catholic. Um, the, the most important thing in that world was love. But he lived right at that point where we're entering the modern world and all that's about to change. It's where Shakespeare's too. That's, that's why Shakespeare's so, been so important for us. So he looks back to, with a certain understanding of what love is, God created the world in love. Love is present everywhere. We're about to enter a scientific world where that understanding of love will be lost. That what will dominate the way people look at the world now is scientific abstractions. <coughs> so a lot of a large number of poems on love, and then he wrote a, um, a large um, collection of poems called the Divine Sonnets, 
Um, and then towards the end of his life, he wrote poems to God our Father, to Christ, um, all, all of which were holy. So you can watch Dunn moving closer and closer to God through his poetry. Love lyrics, the sonnets, and then um, other poems written to God in them. So as he, um, as he gets older, he, I think he approaches God more completely, and, and we see that reflected in his poems. So. This one poem is taken from his collection of holy sonnets. It's Sonnet 7, and it has to do with his sense of his own sin. And I thought it would be appropriate here, because we're entering Advent, it's not Lent, um, it's a minor Advent, but during, sorry, I should have kind of just hit me, I, I meant to say a prayer for all of us. If everybody would think of this as a prayer, right now what I'm saying, that we're entering Advent and it's a time to learn to quiet our wills, to wait, to restrain our desires and wait. So it's a minor fast, but at the center of this is this practice of waiting, doing without, um, because we know the event is coming. So in preparation of that, we're asked to discipline ourselves, to wait, and to do more of what we do in a spirit of hope, because we're looking forward to something not yet. Anyway, I chose this son because it's, it, it, it deals with his own sense of sinfulness and, and the struggle he has with it and asking God to help take that sin away. So, John Dunn, Holy Son at 7. <coughs> Let the round earth's imagined corners blow. <coughs> Let the round earth's imagined corners blow your trumpets, angels, and arise. Arise from death, you numberless infinities of souls. And to your scattered bodies go. All whom the flood did and fire shall overthrow. All whom war, dirt, age, agues, tyrannies, despair, law, chance hath slain. And you whose eye shall behold God and never taste death's woe. But let them sleep, Lord, and me mourn a space. For if above all these my sins abound, my, sins, my sense of sins is greater than all this, Tis late to ask abundance of thy grace when we are there. Here on this lowly ground, teach me how to repent, for that's as good as if thou had sealed my pardon with thy blood. It's a time to repent while we have the chance. Okay, um, I want to do a brief review of... Um, Anthony and Cleopatra, um, and then start Scarlet Letter. Um, um, first of all, remember that um, I've been saying from the beginning that I think, generally speaking, we don't read as well as we would like to think we do. You know, particularly if we're educated, we're smart, and um, and we don't realize um, how often that we don't realize. I mean, we don't see that we we're blind and think we know more than we do. You know that that's absolutely at the heart of the Socratic tradition. 
Socrates is the one who is wise because he knew he wasn't wise, so he spent his life questioning. He, he's the one who images the person coming out of the cave. Because everybody in the cave thinks they have the answers, that what's in front of them they see so well, they're smart, they're educated. Remember, the, 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 the shadows on the wall are cast from people holding books. Remember, they're, they're the ones in the front of the fire. So it's the educated, the reading, the books. Those books are in the, are, those books are um, a reminder, this is really important, those books are a reminder of how much books shape our minds. So because we're reading well and we're educated and they teach us how to see, that's what we see. But Plato's showing, he's giving us, this is so important, he's giving us a metaphysical reading of the physical. What he's saying is that there's something beyond that. The danger is we get caught in our books. And it's important to realize there's something beyond that was the source of those books. Do we know that source? To do that requires coming out of the cave. And you know that you can't come out of the cave unless you question, unless you wonder. So wonder's at the heart of things. In literature, remember Plato said the great concern was that poets understand the ultimate reality um, and are able to bring it in um, and reveal it in whatever they do in their works. And I've been saying, contending really from the beginning, that Shakespeare is one of the greatest poets because un unlike so many other poets, he's Catholic in this sense. He takes every important regime on the threshold of modernity and deals with a problem peculiar to it and answers it in terms of that own regime. It can be Venice, Merchant of Venice, Othello, it can be Anthony and Cleopatra Rome, it can be Merchant or Midsummer Night's Dream in Greece. You know, he's, he's done plays on all major regimes. Italy, Rome, Venice, Florence, England, France, Navarre, even Africa, and you know, um, they're all included. And in each one of those plays, he, he presents a problem that's peculiar to that regime so that we learn um, that people have different problems and the way to answer them requires a different kind of action. So he's Catholic in that sense. It's extraordinary to watch what he does. And I've suggested that it's, it's important to hold on to the cave analogy for all of us, but it's also important to see that the aspect of that cave changes according to the regime. That if you're in France in all's well that ends well, you're looking at something different in the cave than if you were in Venice, in, in um, Merchant of Venice, and dealing with that problem. Is everybody clear? I'm trying to do justice to his genius. Is everybody clear? So that what happens in Merchant of Venice, we've all done it, um, shows something special in Portia that she's able to see what's the problem there and answer it. The problem in all's well in France is very different. It's a monarchy, it's a king. It's a very different kind of problem. You all following? So that he could have done that with all of these regimes is extraordinary. It shows that um, if this is the cave, you know, here's, the, here's the fire, and here's the people in front of it, and here's us down here, that it, it's only the ones who come out here that have a transcendent grasp of things that can come back into the cave and answer all the people inside of it, whether they're in France or Italy or 
Is everybody okay? Mm-hmm. So he's in some ways the most Catholic writer who's ever written, he and Dante. And in some ways, Shakespeare is more boggling to me because of what he does. Bob, can I ask you a question? Yeah, that? sure. How, how can he do that? I mean, it's like, how, I mean, I don't know how somebody can put their mind in the situations like this and grasp the essence of what's going on. I, yeah. Once you see what, because I never realized what you said just a moment ago. Yeah. He's in all these other regimes, and I, you know, it's like, I mean, we all get caught in our own regime or right. our own culture. Absolutely. And however, Absolutely. but, you know, it's like, yep. we can't see it right in front of us. Sometimes, I mean, I'm just getting a glimpse no, yeah. for the first time in my life that no. he's showing us something that. Absolutely never, Catholic. I mean, in a way that I don't. I mean, yeah. you and I would appreciate, I would think, more than other people. Absolutely, like, what's interesting in your question, I mean, you're not, you, you know that you're asking a question I can't answer. I mean, except to say, he's, he, he learned from Plato and Aristotle a metaphysical view of things, and he could bring it to bear to different regimes because he had an extraordinary mind. But what's interesting to me to hear your question is, what it makes us aware of is how provincial we can be in our Catholicism. You know, because we're Catholics, we know it. Read Shakespeare and find out how much we don't know, you know, and then go through his world and open up to every one of these different ethnic cultures, and you realize how provincial you are, or we are, that he gives us this much broader, richer world. <coughs> Your question, I can't answer how to do it. All I know is... Yeah, yeah, it's extraordinary. That was such a good question. Because what's implied in it, I just love your questions, Tom. What's implied in it is a kind of wonder. You wouldn't ask it if you weren't wondering. Anyway, remember Plato said that only the poets who could go out and come back would, would he allow into a city. And I've been claiming from the beginning that Shakespeare's one of those poets. So, But remember to read poetry well means we have to read for the whole. And remember we said the plot is an imitation of an action. What All the events that take place in a play are an imitation of an interior invisible motion, movement from here to here. So when we were dealing with, I mean I'm saying this because so often you know in our world the Pro- Protestants and Catholics are both famous for it. People take quotations from the Bible to prove a point. <laughs> And, and so often, I, I, I think it's hard not to feel that the way they present their arguments are partial, whoever they are, Catholic, Protestant. If, if you're going to quote something from the Bible, you have to do it with a sense of the whole, because otherwise you could use that quote for the wrong reasons. You know, you, you've got to see it in the light of something much larger. So when we read plays, we have to read the whole, and be able to speak to that whole action. Okay, we've been seeing that all along in all the work we've been doing. And um, remember in tragedy, in comedy, the action is from bad fortune to good. That's comedy. And in tragedy, the action is from good fortune to bad. But every tragedy Every good tragedy, according to Aristotle, um, consists of a turn, a moment when the action turns. And that moment generally corresponds to a recognition. 
the tragic hero coming to a point and seeing that everything he thought is not the way it was. Um, and and the, probably the greatest paradigm is Oedipus Rex, because Oedipus Rex, the problem there goes so directly to the mind, the intellect. Oedipus thinks he's smart, he's got all the answers, it's why he was made king, because he could solve the problem. What he shows is the danger for people who think they're smart, unlike Socrates, who knows he's not. People who think they're smart are generally worse off than others because they think they're smart and they don't see how they're not. So there's this moment of recognition and in that moment the tragic hero sees something he hadn't seen before and the action turns. That means tragedies are not just about bad things. There's not a bad in a tragedy that is not answered. So every tragedy empties out on a on a new ground, on a goodness. The injustice, the disorder has been answered. A preparation has been made for a new order. A restoration, a renewal, a refounding. Is everybody following me? I mean, I know these terms are so old going back to the Iliad, but is everybody following? So, um, um, Plato, um, <laughs> Boethius, Shakespeare, all would have seen Boethius, would have believed Boethius's claim. They would have read Boethius. Well, I mean, the early ones weren't, but, but Boethius gets it ultimately from Plato, Plato and Aristotle. Um, bonum est diffusivum. Diffusivum. Goodness is diffusive. I put that phrase on the board before, right? Goodness is diffusive. So the ultimate source of everything is good. It led Boethius to the conclusion there is no bad fortune. If God is good, he, he's taking everything evil going on in the world and turning it to good. Our God is not an evil God. So all evil is being transformed but in terms of what we have to deal with in the world. The question is, do we have the love or wisdom to work with it? Okay. So tragedies are not about bad things. I mean, they are, but they don't resolve into something bad. They always answer the bad. Okay? And I, I just keep, I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself here, but I think so often, you know, very often you see journalists say, it's a tragic event, it's a tragic. That is not what we mean by tragedy. A tragic action doesn't mean everything, everything's gone bad. For anybody to say that means they don't have a very clear vision because according to our faith, some goodness is going to come out of that bad. Do we have the patience to wait on it? Do we have the wisdom to trust in it? Do we, look, do I, do we live our lives that way? Am I following? Are you guys following? Yeah. Barbara? Well, so, yeah. yeah? Okay. So, every tragedy ends in a new order and some goodness. So you're saying good comes out of tragedy and every tragedy, <laughs> what's well, bad? Tragedies are bad. But Deals like, with the bad. Oh, they deal yeah. with the bad. Right. That's the... But it, okay. but it ends with the bad having been answered. The ground has been cleared. A preparation has been made for a refounding, a renovation, Antony, whatever. Do you use Antony and Cleopatra as an example? Yeah, and yeah, that's where we're going. So if you look back to Oedipus, or, I mean Oedipus, or um, more immediately to um, Othello, because one of the questions that I asked him, remember, is, is he, how do we look at him? Is he good or you know, bad? Um, another way to look at that, and I don't want to spend any time there going back because I know that people have different feelings about it. Um, did Iago ever have a moment of recognition? 
that made a turn in his life. No, absolutely not. He's evil. I mean, through Shakespeare's present, he's the most evil person I've met in the literature. Did Othello have a moment of recognition? Absolutely, yes. Um, can you judge as harshly as some people are inclined to do, knowing that? He's, is he the same man that he was in the beginning, like, Oedip like Oedipus Rex? Oedipus was stupid and blind. He killed his father without knowing it and slept with his mother. I mean, there's almost nothing more evil than that. He committed murder and committed incest. My own belief, I mean, some of you may disagree, but I think at the end of, the, at the end of Oedipus Rex, we're looking, his eyes are gouged out. They're sockets. Blood is dripping. In terms of physical appearance, he's the most grotesque person on stage. Obscene, off stage. Obscene, seen, off stage. Is that what they, it means? Mm -hmm. they, wouldn't, they wouldn't show us the blinding. That takes place backstage, obscene, off stage. And he comes out, and his sockets are hollow, blood's dripping. Obscene, it's obscene. <clears throat> um, so in terms of physical um, appearances, he's a horror to look at. <laughs> I think any person worth his sense would have to say he's the most beautiful creature on the, in, the, in the scene. He, he sees and carries a suffering as a part of that new sight that nobody else does. Is that the way the world looks at things? Absolutely not. Aesthetically, he's fouled. Um, he has a wisdom that nobody else on that stage, not even Theseus, the prophet, has. He's an extraordinary man. And what's so often sadly missed, when Sophocles completes his trilogy, Oedipus at Colonus, Oedipus is blessed. The gods take him up because he has a wisdom that no other people have. And we know from Aeschylus and Sophocles, it's the ancient teaching, that the only way to wisdom is through suffering. That so long as we stay on surfaces complete, making judgments, we're in that cave, acting like we're not when we are. It's only when we suffer, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming everybody's going to take the cross. Christianity makes it all explicit. It's only by when you enter that cross, you stop pretending that you think you have all the answers to things, that you can enter the love that God answers. So every tragedy helps us with that view. It takes us through a suffering to another world. Now, last time I, I, I reminded you of the tragic paradigm. Every tragic hero, um, up until America's tragedy, and I, I don't want to go there, but up until some contemporary American tragedies, every tragic hero was a noble-souled individual. Oedipus was not a king. Lear was, Oedipus Rex was a king, um, Hamlet was the prince, son of a king. Most tra Shakespearean tragedies deal with um, regal figures, imperial figures, but that's not a given condition. It, one of the conditions of the ancient tragic paradigm is every tragic protagonist is a noble soul. He has this nobility to, them, to him. He, there's some flaw in his character. He doesn't see it. But that flaw leads him to do things that, that result in these catastrophes that become one of the marks of tragedy. So over the course of the tragic hero's life, because of the choices that he makes, he enters into this darkness. 
That darkness is, in one sense, symbolic of a condition we enter into when we separate ourselves from the world as people know it. We can call it the conventional world. These are the conventions by which people live. Nice house, car, wealth, everything's settled, everything's nice, and su suddenly something happens and that world is dashed. When that happens, you enter into a darkness and you lose your bearings because you can't depend on the world as you've seen it before. In fact, if you didn't know it before, you can't miss it now. <coughs> it was your attachment to that world by living that way that partly created the conditions you're in. So we enter this darkness, and that darkness in one sense represents a separating from, a moving away from that world, because you see something deeper. You, you grow in self-knowledge, and to the degree that you do, your knowledge of other people has changed, and it increases almost always in tragedy, it increases your capacity to love. Because in the world that you left, the conventional world, whether you know it or not, what motivates most people is a selfishness. They're doing what they want to do, they have their way. Um, they're the ones who are actually contributing to the problems. So that's the tragic paradigm. The tragic hero begins with some good. Um, he begins to see that things aren't the way that he thought they were. He reaches this point of recognition. It's a moment of self-knowledge, growing self-knowledge. And a turn takes place. And it generally leads to his death or, um, in, in the case of Oedipus Rex, it doesn't. In, in Oedipus of Cronus, the last play that Socrates wrote, Oedipus is assumed. He, 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 it's, just, it's, a, it's a sacramental moment. It's pre-Christian in, in an amazing way. The gods take him. He's blessed. He's blessed. So through all the suffering, he's learned to see something other people don't. Um, it's exactly what the world doesn't want. Our, and, and I just think about our world because everything about our world says comfort, security, have your way. Any, anything that's painful, cause for divorce, cause for separation, kick, you know. Somehow, suffering is essential because, because it's a reflection of a moment when we have to learn to let things go that we've held on to if we're going to grow. That's the tragic paradigm. <clears throat> so, with that behind you, remember, the, um, <clears throat> the major themes of, of Anthony and Cleopatra, just to briefly go back over them, in, is um, that there are two ways of the world, basically, um, Rome's and Egypt's, that Shakespeare is exploring, and you remember that Rome is um, masculine. Um, masculine, and Egypt is feminine. Rome's stance as the world is that it's committed to justice and the belief that peace can finally be attained. That's Caesar's goal. In the battles that unfold between him and Anthony, he says universal peace is at hand. He absolutely believes that. And we know, historically speaking, that what followed this battle is why Shakespeare, God, it's just amazing. I mean, it goes back to Tom's question. God, it's amazing. Um, when this battle's over, the Pax Romana is established, the peace of Rome. And it's real. Um, it exists for about 200 years before the bad emperors come into power and Rome goes to hell. So after this battle, Rome experiences relative peace for 200 years. There's not complete peace. There's always wars. They went on then. But relatively speaking, 
it's a peaceful existence when you set Rome next to what happened before. Because if you look at what happened with Rome before, Rome was always taken up with civil wars. I'll come back to that. Civil wars were destroying Rome. So Rome is masculine. It has as its aim justice and peace. Um, I want to take a minute with this because it's really important. Um, Egypt is Eastern. It's a little bit more otherworldly, and it's given to the pleasures of the body. Okay, Caesar is despotic. He's an absolute ruler. Um, he gets rid of his competitors to, so that he can rule effectively, and what he does is really effective. I and mean, you have to say about Caesar, whatever you don't like about him personally, he's a good man. He's a, he's a political leader, he's a master of what he does. Um, he's, a, he's a despot. He's autocratic in what he does. So is Cleopatra. She's a very selfish woman. Everything she does, she does for herself. Caesar is, is despotic for the good of other people. Cleopatra is despotic because she wants to please herself. We see that pretty clearly. Rome puts the body at risk because if Rome's going to achieve its end, which is justice and peace, it has to put soldiers' lives at risk who are going to have to go to war to achieve that end. So the body, suffering, <laughs> war, and there's this description of Anthony being in battle and having to drink his urine. It's one of, the, one of the signs of what a great soldier he was. In Egypt, they're feasting on the body. They're getting fat. They're just indulging themselves all the time. Um, there's a pleasuring of the body. Anthony and Cleopatra eat and have sex. Not a bad way of life from one perspective. <laughs> we, I think all of us hope, I, I hope that all of us make a place for the soldier in us, you know, and because I don't, I don't, I don't, I think that's getting lost in the West today, but anyway. So there are two very different ways of standing in the world, and the one that comes to dominate is Rome, because finally Caesar conquers Antony and Cleopatra, and Egypt will become a subject power. If you look at the action in terms of Caesar, it's a rising action. <coughs> he's always successful. At the end of the play, he's defeated his enemies, Anthony and Clinton. Anthony was one of the triumphers, so. But the question that we have to ask is this. In terms of Anthony and Cleopatra, do we see their trajectory down here? or up here. According to Caesar's perspective, and by the way, Caesar honors the two of them. His words about both of them at the end show what a good man he is. I mean, he, he recognizes that there's something great to both of them. Um, so from Caesar's perspective, from the perspective of Rome, if we can call Rome the way of the world, from the way of the world, it's bad. Their, their trajectory. Is there another way? Okay, that's my question, and I want to just now I want to go back very briefly to review some readings and then close our work with this work. Um, <coughs> here, I want to read. I want to read this from a from T. S. Eliot, some of his writings on Shakespeare. I'd like to take that doctor. Anyway, here. 
you don't know the story, and I'm not going to go into it here, but one of the women, <laughs> this is really funny, one of the women at, uh, at uh, Liz Van Seton, because we, t- we talked about getting control of the emotions, and you know how facetious I get often with people in class, and you know that I won't miss a chance to heap coals on anybody's heads, <laughs> Cer- certainly the people I'm fond of. I was talking about, probably putting, saying something about this doctor or something about, and her response to me was, Bob, stop whining. <laughs> I just so loved God bless her soul. Um, this is um, Shakespeare, on, I mean, T.S. Eliot on Shakespeare. In the latter plays, he's saying, Shakespeare's the work of a writer, underscore this, Shakespeare's the work of a writer who's finally seen through the dramatic action of men into a spiritual action which transcends it. Dramatic action in the ordinary sense is inadequate for making those emotions perceptible because one of the most important things for a good poet is to help us form good emotions. How can our hearts get better if what we're experiencing around us is trash, um, pandering, you know, all of those things? Dramatic action in the ordinary sense is inadequate for making those emotions perceptible. Shakespeare tends, therefore, to simplify his characters to make them vehicles for conveying something of which they are unaware. In poetic drama, we are lifted to another plane of reality and a hidden and mysterious pattern pattern of reality appears as from a palimpsest. It's like a lower script. Something is exhibited of which we have only rare glimpses in our daily life. So he's saying... Through the work of art, we are helped by the way he constructs the work of art to see into a transcendent order. I, be- I believe it was there in Lear, or I mean uh, Othello. I know some of you didn't agree with me, but I believe it's here. Let's see, okay, and Anthony and Cleopatra. So, two themes that I, or two areas of focus that I, um, I pointed out here. One is, remember, that in Anthony and Cleopatra, Shakespeare's dealing with what I'm calling the uh, apophatic. Yeah? Apophatic is, is um, the, the word we use to describe the mystical tradition in the West, in Christianity, the dark night of the soul. It's um, very prevalent in Eastern cultures, particularly a country like India, those mystical traditions. Um, <clears throat> you, you learn to move towards the transcendent through negations, by taking away things so that what you're facing is a darkness and absence. So only by getting rid of things that we can get to God. <clears throat> the way of affirmation is Dante, that it's through the things that are created that we come to know the creator, the one who made them. That's the way of Dante. Okay? Here in this play I've been suggesting Shakespeare's working with an element of the apophatic <clears throat> And I'm going to come back to it and give examples. So one of the things that he's doing in this play is constantly making us aware of things by their absence, by vacancy, by gaps, by loss. Okay, I'll come back to that in a sec because I want to elaborate on it a little bit. The second major theme is this theme of justice, of affirming an action because what you're doing is right, because your end is justice and peace. That's what's motivating Caesar. Okay? Those two themes seem to be in tension with each other in the book. Okay? Now let me just give you an example of the, the, the um, 
the struggles for justice as Shakespeare presents them in the world. Because it seems to me one of the things he's making clear is every attempt on the part of a person to achieve justice itself with nothing more, just justice, this is the old world before Christ comes in, is going to result in a problem. It's going to lead to further injustices, people are going to answer those, and they're going to produce the same thing. It's just going to go on and on. Okay? Okay? So when this play opens, we know or should know um, that um, what just transpired in Rome is that um, Brutus and Cassius, two Roman, great, two great men, killed Julius Caesar because he claimed to have a divine power. When they did that, Anthony and Caesar, this Caesar, went to war against them. So Anthony and Caesar defeated Brutus and Cassius. So just before this play opens, a civil war was put to rest. And we know before that a civil war existed because Pompey had been defeated. The Pompey in this play wants to take vengeance for his father's death. So even though all the quarrels have settled, does that mean there's peace? Absolutely not. The play opens, everything seems peaceful, but we know something's wrong. Is that clear? I remember the, line, the opening lines of Eliot's um, Burt Norton, time present and time past, or both present and time future. I mean, if you're only in time and there's no way to answer the wrongs of times, then all time is irredeemable. It cannot be redeemed. We cannot redeem ourselves within time. It's only when somebody comes in from outside of time to answer this problem that it'll ever be solved. So on one level, Shakespeare's showing us people who are trying to answer problems just in time. That's Caesar's whole approach. And I think he does an extraordinary job. But we're still left with these problems, okay? So everybody following? So the Civil Wars have just closed, the play opens, and then this is what we learn. <coughs> Fulvia, Anthony's wife, went to war with Anthony's brother. That's a minor civil war. The two of them join forces to go to war with Caesar. Caesar puts them down. In the opening pages, we learn that Fulvia's dead, that's his wife, and Anthony has to go back to Rome because he feels like he's been um, remiss, negligent in his duties. So something in him, very Roman, calls him back. And when he goes back, you all know the play, he and Caesar have to overcome these strains because Caesar's really angry at him, feels like he's let, because he hasn't upheld his responsibility as a Roman. Okay? So they're at odds. Remember, they all get together to make a peace, the three triumvirs, Anthony, Caesar, and Lepidus, all get together, and they make a peace with Pompey, because Pompey's been raising forces to go against Caesar. So there are potential conflicts everywhere. Okay? So the triumvirs make peace among themselves, Anthony and, um, Anthony and Caesar do. How do they do that? This is a quick quiz. Right, amazing. So, and it's interesting because we see their attitude towards women, and I, I meant to underscore this. The attitude of Romans, the attitude about women, is that they are not as worth the value of men because physically they're not as strong. And you know that Rome depends on its strength, so to that degree it, it will look down on women. Women don't have the physical power that men have in battle. Egypt tends to look down on men. Remember the opening lines, the women are saying, unless men are cuckold, they're not worth anything. Because sex is the most important thing for them. So we're looking at two regimes, two very different attitudes towards man and woman, 
and two different attitudes towards sex in our body. Okay. Um, so the three triumvirs make um, their peace. Here's the irony. I'm trusting you all remember it because to me it's and it's a kind of apophatic irony or an irony dealing with the apophatic. Right when the three triumvirs are meeting with Pompey to make peace, what's going on behind the scenes that they don't know about? That shows us how tenuous this peace is. Well, someone's offering Pompey to kill him while Good for you, Sue. Yep. Minas, this is, don't go there, this is Act 2, Scene 7. Minas, who's one of Pompey's generals, comes up to him secretly and says, do you want to be ruler of the world? Remember, I went over this. Pompey says, what? Minas says again, do you want to be ruler of the world? And, and Pompey says, don't. And, and Minas gets really irritated. He said, if you want me to kill them, I'll kill them. It, it was an opportunity for Minas to kill Anthony Caesar Lepidus, get rid of them, and Pompey could have ruled the world. Caesar just escaped death, even though he doesn't know it. Cleopatra's description of Caesar is, Caesar is fortune's slave. Because Caesar's whole approach to the world is overcoming fortune. By the way, I, I don't know if anybody sees the connection here between Shakespeare, and what, I mean Rome, and what Shakespeare's doing. How does America answer that problem? What, uh, is, does fortune not exist for us? Is it not a concern for us? Fortune. 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 Contingencies. Our answer to them is money. If you have the power, you can get medical insurance, you can buy insurance, you can buy a home, you can buy guards. Right? We think if we do all that, we've got a secure life. Is our life any more secure with all of that stuff? We, put, we vest all of our stuff in wealth and power, insurance, everything everything to give us the illusion that we're covered. And then illnesses come, deaths come. I mean, you all, I hope just, yeah. Caesar's attitude is he can overcome fortune. That's the great Renaissance theme, what we call contingencies, if he has the power and, and the wherewithal, the, 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 a mind for strategies. Minas says, give me the word and I'll kill them. And Pompey says, I can't. It would have been better for you to do it and, and not... You know, not ask me. But now that you've asked me, I can't because as a man of honor. So even though they just made a treaty, the one the great irony is it's a treaty on the surface. We know that potentially there are people around. And Anthony marries Octavius to seal the deal. They're now at peace. He goes home. What does Caesar do? He and Caesar go to war with Pompey, defeat him, get him out. As soon as they defeat Pompey, what, do, what does Caesar do? Caesar trumps up charges against Lepidus and gets him out of the way. So here's the justice that is the way of the world. Okay? Is everybody following? When Caesar's alone, Anthony knows he's been betrayed. He and, he and Caesar are going to go to war. And that's when he and Cleopatra make the decision to go in. And he makes the stupid decision to go in at sea and you know what happens. Is everybody following? So in terms of just justice, what the play is showing is that this is the way the world is. That's the way of the world. And Rome is dominant. And if anybody has their sense here, they'll see 
the two regimes on which modern America, a democracy and a republic, we're both a republic, Democrats, Republicans, the two regimes on which America is based are Athens, Rome. Those are our origins. Okay? But we believe if we only do this, justice will be here. So on one level, Shakespeare's showing us that world. Okay? And how effective a ruler like Caesar can be in bringing about justice and peace. Okay? And in some measure, it's real. Okay? Now, let me just quickly, I want to just read just a few readings to get us back into the play. Any questions before we look at, I just want to recall a couple of passages to go to this end. How do we look at the end of um, Anthony and Cleopatra and what they do? Any questions to this point? The second theme is justice. The first theme is... The apophatic. Okay. Remember the... Remember the I went through this. Remember the opening yeah. scene when it opens with Cleopatra saying, "Tell me how much." What did she say, or what did he say for her to respond that way? You all know, but we don't hear the words. We know that we know those words by their absence. That's extraordinary. Shakespeare's <coughs> teaching us there's something there. In fact, here to try and make this explicit. Remember the opening question that I've been asking for weeks. Because we're, um, we're coming into modernity and Shakespeare is going backwards the time before Christ. Is God present when he seems to be absent? Was, what was God doing before Christ came? Was he not there? Did, did people see him? I mean, the Indians saw him in a certain way, the African, you know, but this whole notion of learning to see whether something is there in absence is. Shakespeare's dealing with it in an amazing way. So the play opens on an apophatic moment. At the end of that exchange, when she says, I'll set a born on it, a limit, then he said, it'll take a new heaven, a new earth, because there's no way for him to express what in his mind is infinite. New heaven, a new earth? New Testament. Do we see it? No, there's no way, because Christ hasn't come yet. So that exchange between the two of them have bookends, both apophatic. Opens with it, closes with it. And then all the way through the play, there are these... Remember when, um, when Shakespeare, um, Anthony and Cleopatra met and they met and she's arriving and the whole town empties and there's the use of that absent as if the whole town empties itself. There are times where Shakespeare's using gaps in times or losses or privations. Over and over and over. We don't have time to go into it. But he's, the fact that he's doing that so consciously is, is asking us to be aware of whether we see something that isn't physically present to us. Do we know that? That's really like Socrates in the cave. Because the real reality, remember, is outside the cave. And everybody thinks what's in front of them that they see with their senses is what's real. Are we okay? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, let me just take some readings now. So, just an example of some of what I'm calling withdrawals. They're a part of this absent, that something's being withdrawn. It's leaving an absent, a vacancy. Um, when Mina says this to, 
to Pompey, do you want me to kill them? And Pompey says, no. Minas wants to leave. Um, Act 3, scene 11. Act 3, scene 10. Um, this is just after Antony's first defeat. You don't have to, you can just mark this down, but it's Act 3, scene 10. Canidia says, to Caesar will I render my legions and my horse. Six kings already show me the way of yielding. He's betraying Anthony. He's leaving Anthony because he thinks what he's doing is stupid. He's going to go to Caesar. This is in a scene where he's exchanging words with Enobarbus, and you know that Enobarbus is going to leave him. To me, it's one of the most painful moments of the... Um, Act 3, scene 13... Um, having suffered that defeat and watching Antony's response to it, he and Cleopatra are going to celebrate and go to bed, and um, you know finally Antony's going to get... He, he's going to make terms with Caesar. And Caesar sends that slave, and Antony is so humiliated he gets furious, and he decides to fight. Um, Act 3, scene 13, Enobarbus, yes, like enough, high battle Caesar will upstate his happiness, and be staged to the show against disorder. I see men's judgments are a parcel of their fortunes, and things outward do draw the inward qualities after them, to suffer all alike. That he should dream, knowing all measures, the full Caesar will answer his emptiness. Caesar, thou hast subdued his judgment. Every judgment Anthony's making right now in Eno Barbus's mind is an absent. He's lost himself. This is another apophatic. And this is the point that, um, at which he says he's got to leave him. Um, um, three, Act 3, 13, Enobarbus, this is about line 200, now he'll outstare the lightning. To be furious is to be frighted out of fear, and in that move the dove will peck the estrage, and I see still a diminution in our captain's brain, something's withdrawing, restores his heart. When valor preys on reason, when what you're, even though you're valorous, you're doing stupid things, it eats the sword it fights with. I will seek some way to leave him. This has been his most loyal soldier. <clears throat> in the next scene, before they go into battle again, Anthony is so tender with his men that um, um, he, he, he's overwhelmed with gratitude that they would have spent their life serving him. He's on the verge of feeling that he's let his men down, and he, I think he's assuming that he will lose the battle the next day, even though he's, this is the, after the second battle, that he's won, okay? Um, and he puts his men in tears, and Enobarbus says, um, when, um, in response to what's going on, he says, what mean you, sir, to give them this discomfort? Look, they weep, and I, an ass, am onion-eyed for shame, transform us not to women. Last thing what Roman soldiers want to be. And um, in, in, uh, in the exchange between Unobarbus and Cleopatra, she says of herself, when he says, don't go to battle because it's the worst thing you can do, she says, I'm going in, I will man it. So Rome, which has been very manly, is now described by Unobarbus as being turned in, I mean, this is a, it's a minor passage, it's not the whole regime, but it's a scene in which, what, because of what Anthony does, it's reducing them into women. Cleopatra shows she separates herself from that regime. She stands outside it because she's going to go to war and take on the role of a man. So we're watching both figures move away 
in their identities from their regimes. Okay? Now, right at this point, after Enobarba says, I've got to find a way to leave him, the soldiers on guard, and you remember the scene, the oboe music. Remember, music always means something, often it means something holy, something, something too deep for words. Words can't capture what's going on. And the soldiers ask, what's going on with the oboe under the stairs? Music in the air, under the earth, it signs well, does it not? No, peace, I say. He says, shh, but it is the god Hercules whom Anthony loved, now leaves him. So there are all these withdrawals. Minas, um, um, what's his name, Phidias. Enobarbus is leaving. In the, um, in the next scene, when Anthony does defeat Caesar, Enobarbus has gone over to Caesar's side when Anthony defeats him. And it's at that moment that all of his belongings are returned to him because you remember um, when Anthony learns that Enobarbus is gone, he says to his soldier, Go, Eros, send his treasures. After, do it, detain not. I charge thee, write to him. I will subscribe, gentle the Jews, and greetings. Say that I wish he never find more cause to change a master. Oh, my fortunes have corrupted honest men. He takes it all on himself. It's like Helena with Bertram. It's his fault. He sends all of his stuff back. At the same time that Anthony has defeated Caesar, and Enobarbus is now on Caesar's side, Enobarbus receives these gifts. He says, he says, I am alone the villain of the earth, and I feel I am most. O Anthony, thou mine, thou mine of bounty, how wouldst thou have paid my better service when my turpitude thou dost crown with gold? This blows my heart. If swift thought break it not, a swifter mean shall outstrike thought, but thought will do it, I feel. I fight against thee. He's on Caesar's side. No way to do it. No, I will go seek some ditch wherein to die. He's already betrayed Anthony. There's no way he's going to fight with Caesar against the man he loves. He's feeling his betrayal. No, I will go seek some ditch wherein to die. The foulest God, the foulest best fits my latter part of life. And you know that in the next scene we see him going into a ditch and his heart breaks. And his last words are, Let the world rank me a register, a master lever, and a fugitive, oh Anthony, oh Anthony, he dies. So a withdrawal again, and in this case, a death. Now, quickly, I just I want to remind you of a couple of scenes. In the third battle, you know that once again Cleopatra turns, um, and Anthony goes after her, and this time he is more than furious. I mean, he almost wants to kill her. Um, um, he learns that she's dead. He wants to take his life. He botches it. Um, when she learns, she sends news to him, he's taken up in the tower and the two are reconciled. Um, um, <clears throat> just two quick things. Dolabella and Caesar's soldiers come to her and it's at that point, Act 5, Scene 2, when she describes that dream. I've read it. You all remember it, don't you? Um, his legs bestrid the ocean, his reared arm crested the world, his voice was propertied. Is all the tuned spheres. He's larger than the universe. Um, for his bounty, his great goodness, there was no winter in it. There's no more dying in that world. And autumn twas that grew the more by reaping. The more you reap it, the more it produces. His delights were dolphin-like. They showed his back above the elements they lived in, in his livery walled crowns and crownets. Realms and islands were his places dropped from his pockets. 
he's trying to shush her because he thinks she's mad. And then you know that she sneaks in the clown with the asp and um, she has that scene where she says, just before she puts the asp on herself, her breast, give me my robe. The words are so important. Give me my robe. I have immortal longings on me. Now no more the juice of Egypt's grape shall moist this lip. Yer, yer, good iris, quick. Methinks I hear Anthony call. I see him rouse himself to praise my noble act. I hear him mock the luck of Caesar, which the gods give men to excuse their afterward. Husband, she calls him a husband. Husband, I come. Now to the name, my courage, prove my title. I am fire and air. My other, those are the two most transcendent body, body and water. Um, I give to base your life. Um, so, have you done? Come then, take the last warmth of my lips. Farewell, Concharmian. Iris, long farewell. She kisses Iris, and Iris falls on the kiss. She dies on the kiss. Remember, when Anthony was going to take his life, he called on Eros, think of the name, because it means love, his soldier, to do it, because that was his job. Eros couldn't do it. He took his life because he did not want to see Anthony die. When, it, when Eros fails, Anthony takes his own life, and he botches it. And then we get to this ending. Now here's, just remember this. Before, before she takes her life, she, Donabella has told her what Caesar's going to do. Caesar's going to take her, treat her as a trophy leader in Rome as a victory, and she'll spend out her days that way. And neither Anthony nor Cleopatra wanted to be defeated that way. Okay? Cleopatra says, when she learns about what Caesar's going to do, Nate is most certain Iris Saucy lictors will catch us like strumpets. So the song singers, the, po the poets, the ballad makers will treat them as strumpets and ballad us out of tune. That is, whatever, they, whatever art is done will not correspond to reality. They will ballad us out of tune. <coughs> the quick comedians extemporarily will stage us and presenter Alexandria Revels. Anthony shall be brought drunken forth. Anthony's going to be displayed as a drunkard. Why? Be because it's a parody and as a way of underscoring Rome's success. This guy who spent all of his time with a woman instead of fighting battles. The guy that was once the epitome of Rome is now going to be its antithesis. Extemporary will stage us and present our Alexandrian rebels. Anthony shall be brought drunken forth, and I shall see some squeaking Cleopatra. Boy, my greatness. That whoever represents her in poetry will, will unsex her. They'll, they'll not come close to doing justice to who she is as a woman, sexually. Okay? So keeping in mind what Eliot said, that in these later dramas... Shakespeare has reached a point where he learns to see through the affairs of this world to a transcendent order. So is the Anthony and Cleopatra at the end of this play, from the world's perspective, from Caesar's perspective, there'll be one thing. What does Shakespeare show us? Are they a whore and drunkard? Is there something more? I feel like we're back with Faulkner and Eula and Spain and you know all of these. Don't raise your hand, Linda. Just come on. 
Come on. What do you, you said? Don't worry. Oh, 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 I got it. Okay. Two, two thoughts. Um, it, it, it's kind of stunning, or the irony that um, Antony's a master warrior and he botches his own death. I yes. Just yes, it is. It is. And the other, at the end, um, Cleopatra makes suicide sound like a noble act. Yeah, and the question is, is it? By yeah, the way, before you go back, remember one of the things I'm suggesting here, particularly here at the end, if you think of the, this play in terms of an apophatic element of absences and withdrawals, remember, we're on the verge. Shakespeare knows this. The Pax Romana is off the, off the horizon. It's about to come. Christ is about to enter. The god Hercules has withdrawn. There are all these withdrawals. And in Anthony and Cleopatra, you watch a man and a woman begin to withdraw from their regime. I didn't read the passages. Remember, after the first battle, Anthony says, the land will not hold me. The land will not hold me. He's a foot soldier. The land will not hold me. Um, that's the first one after the first defeat, because he's lost himself. Hark, the land bids me tread no more upon it. It is a shame to bear me. I have fled myself. Once you step out, remember my paradigm of the darkness, the tragic heroine, or hero, or heroine, in this case, Cleopatra. Once you stop, step outside of that world and it's tends it to judge by its standard, you enter a darkness, a world that world doesn't know. The question is, have they descended morally, or is there something transcendent going on in what they feel between them that the world doesn't know? Both of them are losing their identity. And by the way, I, one of the reasons I mentioned that, um, when Eno Barbas says to Anthony, what are you doing? You're making a woman of them? And Cleopatra says, I, she's a woman. taking. She's never done this before in her life. She's taken on the role of a man. She's going to war. She turns, but she's... Remember Paul's, Christ's, there is no more man or woman. Just to throw another irony. And the other irony, when Anthony, I mean, it's such, a, it's such an obvious irony. He's the greatest warrior in the world. Eros is not going to kill him. He doesn't want to see him die. Anthony's the greatest warrior, and he botches it. What does that say about him? Is he himself? Yes, no. I mean, you can, you can condemn him, but you can also say we're... We, we show, Shakespeare's showing us an image of two people who can no longer define themselves by the things that contributed to the problems of the world. Because it's the people who think everything's okay that are really the causes of it. They've entered a world in which does a recognition take place on the part of either of them? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Can you uh, remember, Tom? Well, I don't know. Just well, the, the thing with the asp is incredible. But also the the fact that the, uh, they both they both enter a world of transcendence beyond human form, and I don't know Jung call it archetypal. You know, it's kind yep. of like that. Yep. They both become yep. something in death they could not be in. Yeah. <coughs> and there's that other passage. I'm sorry, I can't remember. But when um, when Anthony's describing himself. So in that first one, he says, the land won't hold me. And, and, and repeatedly, here's ashamed of himself. He's let his men down. Does, are the words, are the values with which he, by which he's lived up to this point any help to help him through this period of darkness? 
No, because it's those, it's those things that keep the, this justice, peace, justice, peace, justice, injustice, injustice. There's nothing transcendent entering that world. So Anthony's not himself. I mean, that great irony to me is he does botch it. In the quite you can condemn him. You can also say it's fitting because this is not the man who started the play. He is, something has happened to this man. You can make it negative. You can also say something transcendent. He's not familiar with it all has entered his person. Same thing with Cleopatra. After the first battle, she says, I think with a broken heart, pardon. She's learned to see, feel things. And when she says, this is the queen of Egypt, she said over, she says, I can't remember words, she said, blast Egypt, get rid of it. The two have moved away from their center, their earthly centers of gravity. Um, well, they have to go through that loss, don't they? I mean, it's like they have to disidentify. With how can you not? I mean, how do you get there without pain because you're giving up everything right. you live for? The whole world things value, you know, and the problems they create for the world. Remember Cleopatra's dream? It reminds me of Mary in, the, you know, in Revelation. And when St. Thomas says, the human person because he's created in the image of God, he has personhood in a way earthly things do not. This is not, a, it's a thing. A tree's a thing. A tree's a subject. It has its own treeness. But none of those things have personhood. Humans do. St. Thomas said the human person is greater than the entire physical universe. When she sees Anthony, that's a vision of something glorious. Can she be valued by the world anymore? I mean, well, they will boy my, you know, they will boy me, and, and Anthony will be looked at as a drunkard. Let me make my argument in the go, because I want to start, just open some thoughts. It seems to me if we look at the tragedy in terms of Caesar's success, because he's a successful person, so by the world's term, he's the standard. If you look at it, Anthony and Cleopatra will be here. Does Caesar... Has Caesar been able to enter into what's happened with Anthony and Cleopatra the way we have as readers? Has he been able to feel what Anthony feels or feel what Cleopatra, you know, when she... No, that's the only one who knows it is the poet or us. So from the world's perspective, they, they will have fallen short. The question is, is that the way to see them or have they entered something transcendent which also gives us a, me, a, a means of judging the world and seeing the world more clearly, its failings. With all of its success, all of its power, all of its image, remember those four Boeth the Boethian things, wealth, power, image, wealth, pleasure. That those are natural goods, but when, they, when man makes them everything, they become negative. So, I, let me offer this and then close and I'll leave any questions you guys have. It seems to me like here, like um, Othello, we've entered a tragic world, but through that world we're given a glimpse of something greater. So tragedy cannot just mean something negative. That a recognition, a kind of self-knowledge, and a capacity to love beyond the way the world knows it enters this world. And in it, some sense, I think what Shakespeare's saying is, and the reason he's choosing this play is because 
the war, the civil wars that have been tearing Rome apart will stop after this. Relative peace will come. And a few years later, Christ comes into the world. So when the god Hercules is leaving and all these people withdrawing, the strange thing, when Enobarbus leaves, okay, here, here, let me put it, when Enobarbus makes those, that speech, I'm the, alone the most villain of the world, and then he dies from a broken heart, from a broken heart, and Iris dies on the kiss, are those Roman and Egyptian? They're past that world. I, when I watch Enobarbus, I, I, I wonder, Peter had to have felt something like that after his betrayal. He had to go through a period where he was absolutely crushed knowing he betrayed his Lord, the man he loved most. Imagine how it is when, the per when you come to a point in your life when the person you know you love most, you've done something to let down because of your goddamn innocence. You know this. So he's, he, he dies from a broken heart. How Roman is that? Not Roman at all. He's left. He left Anthony, and he's leaving Caesar. He's entered another world. Iris does the same thing. Cleopatra kisses her, and she dies. It's like Eros. Yeah, she dies on the kiss. Um, so Shakespeare's showing us. Would the Romans have understood any of this? Absolutely not. Absolutely beyond them. Only a Christian could. That's why a poet can go back to a pre-Christian world in a way that's faithful to that pre-Christian world, historically, I mean, he's showing us the battles, and yet show us something at work that that world could never have known. And it, so it's two things. One, it's showing God work in the world, but it also gives us a way of measuring our own actions today. Where are we? Caesar, moralizing, blind, not entering, I mean, what times of sanction, I mean, it, you know, both the one about transcendent, but also his thing about this false self that I thought was so good that, you know, as, as Catholic Christians, how much do we see the world on its own terms and how much, how much do we love people when there seems to be no reason for loving them when that's exactly why Christ came into the world? So Shakespeare is helping us to see the worst things in the world, and it seems to me he's making it as hard as he can to allow us to stay where we are. How about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You think Shakespeare's audience got all this? Oh, there? absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> so either, if you if you guys are using logic at all, it either means the teacher in front of you has lost it completely. <laughs> Or that the poets see something that, the great poets see something that most people don't. And I'm just as trusting that you, otherwise why have you guys been here? I mean, I'm just sort of amazed that you guys have been here as long as you Why are we here together? Reading poetry? The businessmen in the world are, sorry, what? Knock her over the head for me. Will you just once before she dies? While most of the businessmen in the world are going, get a job. Get a job. So is Shakespeare motivating us to make change in the world? Is that what you're saying? He helps well, us see the worst things in the world, which then if we're touched, we don't leave his 
work untouched, so we would go be motivated to make positive change in the world. See, I, except I, I, that's mm -hmm. a little bit too big of a jump for me, yeah. because it, to say that is in, implicitly put yourself with Caesar, whether you know it or not. The motive that's there is that by learning to see these things and feel them, if we see them at all, we begin to make changes in ourselves. Do we answer these problems that are in us? These, I think Thomas puts it well. Because if we do, by, by the way, think about political activists. Political activists have one goal. Is it, is it to, in Plato's word, mind your own business? No, because they skip that. They already think they're so good that they're out there trying to make the world good. Have they dealt with the things inside of themselves that they should have to make a change in the world? No. All the poets, if, if there's any, anything to them, they should be helping us to change our, our minds and our hearts so that what we bring to the world, it doesn't have to be an activist agenda. How, whatever we do with the world will be different. That's absolutely at the center of Christianity. We should not be going out to try to change the world because we're skipping our, we're supposed to change ourselves. If we do that, whatever we do in the world is going to change. People will be effective, but not for some political agenda. Poets help us to see outer and inner worlds. And they, the great thing, the great poets do, is they help us to feel these things so that our hearts are affected. We're just not making arguments in our head. You know I've been beating you over the heads with that. <laughs> Um, because it, it, that's one of the things poetry does to it. It gets us out of abstractions or ideas, ideas in our heads. God, there are times I want to take a hammer to me. I mean, the ideas we have in our heads and straighten out our hearts. Because if we do, if they help us to see better and feel better, we're, we change as people. We become, hopefully, we become better. And in this, this setting, I hope it's a, it's a strength for our faith our call to love, to strengthen our faith. Anyway, hmm. leave it. Any? Oh, I think the one of the things I've just started to feel, I mean, just getting a glimpse of Shakespeare, I think for the first time in my life, is that, that there's something that gets stirred inside of you, and uh, it, it's like planting seeds. I mean, that's the way. Merton called it Seeds of Contemplation. Yeah. Say it again? Seeds of Contemplation. See, that's right. By the way, that's the title of his book, in case yeah, anybody yeah. wants oh, to... you got to read that book. And so it's like uh, those little glimpses he has and says, uh, Merton, but also I think the poet is obviously, um, you know, it's like he's, he's, uh, he's, he's, uh, he's, another way of saying, stirring up the unconscious that he's bringing to light what's inside of all of us and that and part yeah. of that in, interchange is, do, is doing the work on understanding that hmm. that each character is us in some way and we have to wrestle with them yeah. or we don't get the benefit. Yeah. You know, I think yeah. it's like, uh, it's like a big psychodrama. <laughs> it's very because true. it's outside but it's also inside. Yeah. Part of the wonder of it for me, I mean, going, I was so taken by your early question, Tom, only in the sense that what you expressed was this wonder. And it's not like you were asking a question. I couldn't answer it. It's just, it, I mean, my on-the-surface answer is the obvious one. Shakespeare could do this because he had that past in a way that we don't. I mean, it's one of the purposes of this class for me. He read Aristotle and he read Plato. He had that, it was so deep a part of him. 
So he had a way of dealing with, and he had a faith that they didn't have. I mean, he entered a, was a product of a Christian world. And he had all the scholastics behind him. He had Saint, he had Augustine, Boethius, St. Thomas. So when he takes on all these regimes, he's got a way of dealing with them that only a really gifted person, I mean, how many people would approach the world? Dante didn't do it that way, Dante took Italy. I, it's a paradigm, I think, you know, for our world. But Shakespeare took all those regimes. Um, who could do that? I mean, it had to be a man who was Catholic, who, under, who had this grasp of metaphysics in a cave, to, could bring it back into the cave and do it under the, the particular circumstances of each kind of regime. And see the, it's like Thomas with his questions. This is true, this is true, this is, no, this isn't true, I tell you this. And then, you know, it, he, he goes into each regime, looks at it, its problem that seems to be this, it seems to be this, and says, no, I answer that. I mean, only somebody, only somebody who, whose love was absolutely Catholic, that wasn't bound by skin color or race or sex, could do that. Um, so you're saying a Protestant couldn't do that? Oh, absolutely. So why do you have to be Catholic? You said only a Catholic heart could do that. Well, can somebody else answer that or maybe... Because I, I think the basis of the Protestant religion is, is too individualistic. After the Protestant Reformation, it's your, your private faith in God becomes your arbiter. You break from the authority of the church, it begins to break down. I mean, you can watch the whole descent. I'm going to go through it again here briefly, but it starts with something too individualistic. What's at the basis of a Catholic, if he's living, and by the way, I don't think most Catholics live it today, but is that the Trinity, that, I mean, you hear this all the time. Priests will say the big difference is that um, Protestants are private and Catholics are communal. Well, it's true, but it misses. If there's anything communal to Catholic, it's because the Trinity's behind them. It's not one God. It is one God. Well, sorry, sorry. What? It is one God, but it's three persons. That is, it, 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 we, we, we can't be living our faith <laughs> If we're not with, I was raised Greek Orthodox. I've already gone through this story. You can't be in a Greek world and not feel that something of your belief isolates you from other races, whether you're even aware of it or not. A Catholic has, it, for a Catholic to live his faith means he has to be one with everybody. He can't let his regime, if it's English, Anglican, Episcopalian, Greek Orthodox, he can't let the nation the culture, keep him from loving everyone. I mean, that's what's even more astounding to me, that he could have taken us to so many regimes, dealt with problems, and answered them with a love. That, to me, is absolutely um, Christ. How acclaimed was he in his time? Did, he, did it get to the point where people said, Oh, he's got another play coming out in two weeks. Get ready. We was it was he that popular? Wait, before just to just to put another sorry, Jay, because I want to remember when Shakespeare was writing, Shakespeare was writing under what Henry Tudor had set in motion. You've got an absolute state, and it's persecuting Catholics. So the priests are out, properties are confiscated. Um, they're not allowed to celebrate. The, pu the Puritans 
fled that country for, because they wanted the freedom to practice their belief. That's why America's here. So he lived at a time where you're under absolute powers. So the play, playwriters, artists, were, their lives were always at risk. Some of them were put in the tower, some of them executed. Just a unit for you to be aware that that happened. Um, if you look at his plays, it's interesting to me how many of them deal with royal subjects like Macbeth. They're gonna, Macbeth's gonna kill the king and, or Leontes, the problem with an heir, you know, divorce. I mean, um, that, that nobody could have dealt with those problems explicitly without putting themselves in danger. So you have to remember that's the atmosphere. It's a, and it, it was a Catholic England, but then it got divided. I mean, it's Protestant in England at this time. Um, um, Shakespeare had to have been popular among in, in, in groups um, that took seriously reading. Now, I know Ben Jonson was a popular poet, but how far that extended outside of London or centers of learning, you know, education, I can't answer. But within those educated circles, the poets like Ben Jonson and Dunn, they would have been really popular, but I, 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 it's hard for me to picture it like people lining up at a theater or, you know, going to Redbox to get DVDs. It's, well, media doesn't have the, media has so taken over our world, you know, that there's a different kind of culture then, but certainly people like Johnson, Ben Johnson, John Dunn, uh, Milton, Harvard, I mean uh, Cambridge, Oxford were centers of learning so that people connected with those centers would have been in touch with the readings of Shakespeare or Milton or, you know, those people. But out, sorry, but outside of that culture, It's a, different, it's a different problem. Today, we believe in universal education, so, and the sad thing is, Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. the sad thing is we believe in universal education. How many people will read Aristotle or play today, or Milton? Yeah. Then, I mean, the, no. the uneducated, uneducated didn't read because it wasn't available to them. So, the, <laughs> you know, when you talk about popularity, it's, it's a different situation here. We, we try to educate. My own belief is that what we've, what we've done to education in the last 40 years is abominable. I mean, it's horrible. I, I don't think kids are getting educated today. I think they're getting indoctrinated. Mm -hmm. They don't have available to them. How many kids are going to read Plato, Aristotle, dead white men, God, Boethius, Shakespeare, Dante, Milton? Um, it's not going to happen. So I don't know that that answered your question very directly. But. He made a good living. He didn't have to work another job. But I also think that's because there was, a, we, we, I think from what we know, he had a good business mind. So it wasn't his just, he didn't, I don't think he made his living on his plays. And he inherited, you know, a lot of these people inherited things that helped uh, support their careers in writing. Well, I think about John Donne and Ben Johnson and poets like that. Um, anyway, Scarlet Letter. You guys are worn out. I thought that's what we were going to do. <laughs> Should I not have done this, Linda? <laughs> that's one of my one of my reasons for being in the world. 
Yes, yes. Okay. I have another concern. I was going to say, Sue, you're not Catholic, right? Right. Do you get offended? I mean, Bob is all, I mean, I'm I get that. I'm going to pass that. Pass that. The Catholic mind. Make, Bob, make, I, in my opinion, makes it, us sound superior. And I don't well, think we are. I mean, if, there are assumptions. You have to understand. I'm a okay. math, mathematical mathematician. So there so are assumptions not. Bob makes that I don't agree with. And so I, I can, at that point, not worry. I mean, it's no longer an argument for me because we're not. Let it go. Yeah. Okay. And it's not my experience. So, I mean, I can still learn and. Not worry about it. I don't know any other. And not dislike the rest of us in the class. <laughs> <laughs> what? And what? Sorry? Not dislike the rest of us dislike the rest of us in the class. No, I don't dislike. I mean, it's not dislike. It's just I don't agree with some things. But there's no point in arguing, arguing that. You just keep yeah. your eye and let it go. I mean, yeah. I'm thinking. Well, there's a, a basis. There's. If you don't agree with someone's assumptions, you have yeah. a choice. You can argue about the assumptions, or you can learn the other side. Sort of what's coming. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm going to make a couple of, one is, I'm not here, um, I'm not here to avoid making somebody uncomfortable. No. If I, hold no, on, hold on, just hold on, this is serious to me. If I made my concern that I didn't offend somebody, I wouldn't be here. Um, be, hold on, Linda, I want your attention on this. If I were here and I took as my purpose not to offend somebody, I wouldn't be a teacher. Yeah. Um, so that's not a concern. I'm even sorry that you asked the question the way that you did. Um, I have nothing but, I, I think Sue knows this, I have nothing but admiration for her. We've had sure. talks about it. Because I know that I'm saying things that go directly to her beliefs. It's, she's been here for like four or five years. years. Four. Yeah, I don't know. I admire her courage. I admire her courage, and I am grateful for the times that we've had together. She cannot be in this class and not know that she's going to be hearing things that she disagrees with, or she wouldn't be here because this is a Catholic setting, and it's not only Catholic setting; it's catechetical. And if anybody knows anything about the way that I've done this, you know that I've done everything I can to play that down. I'm trying to teach literature for what's there and not catechize. Times I come in. But my, my, my responsibility, my task, is to try to do justice to bring the truth of something out, whether it offends somebody or not. Um, I admire, I, I, you know this because I've said it to you, I, I have nothing but admiration for not only because of what she just said, but because in spite of the differences between us on our basic assumptions, mm -hmm. she's here learning. Mm -hmm. And I'm trusting that whatever I've had to say has been of worth to her off those assumptions or she wouldn't continue to be here. Mm -hmm. Because whatever the beginning points are, and they're fundamentally different, there's a wealth of things to be learned or we wouldn't be here together. But I am not here not to offend people. If that ever became a concern for I've tried to be courteous all the time, and I know I've slipped at times. Um, I've tried to be courteous in what I've done, but I will not go around something in order not to avoid um, offending somebody, because if I ever do that, I'm lost. Can I say something, Bob? Yeah. Because I think what's important, and I think you all do this. Can I have a sip? I don't agree with everything Bob says, and I doubt very much. I don't need you some water. I don't either. Okay. That anybody <laughs> in this room does all the time. <laughs> right. But it challenges me to assess mm -hmm. 
what I'm thinking in a deeper way. Me too. Thank and you. so that's important to me. Me too. So, Thanks. I agree. And I'm assuming, I'm trusting from what you said and from what everybody else has said, that there's a depth of what we're doing that I hope is changing everybody's lives or this is pointless. I would not be here. I would not be here. I do not, I'm not here to teach literature. I'm here to answer another question through literature hoping that it will help people change their lives. The way they look at things, the way they feel about things, their minds, their hearts. Otherwise, what am I doing as a teacher? Um, I'm not a doctor doing heart surgery. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a literature teacher hoping that what we do with poetry will affect our hearts in different ways. And I, yeah, and most of the people, and, and I, I, my sense is, certainly my hope, if it doesn't go to, de like Socrates, I mean, it really, I, I hold him, I think Thomas is superior, superiority? Thomas is superior to um, Tom, or I mean to Socrates. For for a lot, there are too many to go into, but he's superior. There are questions about superiority because there are some things that are better than others. Otherwise, because any truth that anybody makes could make the truth. We know that that's not true. If people's depths weren't affected here, I would not be here. I would not continue. I don't want to stay on a surface. I'm not going to teach an ideology. I'm not going to teach Marx or feminism or Freudism, um, it's your way of saying quiet down. There's drugs in there. Can we do, can we do, can we do Scarlet Letter? I'm assuming, I hope, I, I admire all of you all of you. I do. You already know that. I admire you all that you have been here for long asking the questions that you do. You've got the courage. Um, otherwise, we admire why? you too. Huh? We admire you too for the same reason. Thanks. thanks. That we've been doing this um, on, on the, and, and here, another dimension. Literatures, you, you know my love of literature. You know my You can't miss it. Um, and you know how much it means to me, and you know my concern about education. You know, I don't try to take up time with it, but my focus is here. But one of the things I'm most grateful for are you guys. I've said that again and again. I don't think, because I think probably you're grateful for me. But I've tried saying this a number of times. I'm really grateful for you because we couldn't do this without each other. We could not. Um, for whatever way you see as me leading this class, agreeing or disagreeing, um, there's something going on with all of us. The prayers have meant a blessing to Suzanne and me that we could say prayers together, particularly about things that might be embarrassing, that, that we're comfortable enough together to offer a prayer when it might be revealing, to me is such a sign of a growth in faith there's so much going on at depths in the work that we're doing that is such a source of gratitude for me. I can't express it. That's me for you guys and what we do together. So it isn't just my teaching or you know, differences in assumptions. Because I take Sue wouldn't be here if if because she's she's got too good a mind. Um, um, if she weren't getting depths of this. And I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe she wasn't getting it. I, 
Now she's going to be going for five months. I know. I've already. already kind of, I'm running away from home. Just, I know, I just, <laughs> I've already. Coincidentally. I, I've already told her she does not have my permission. <laughs> and I told him, thank you, but. <laughs> Such respect for you guys, I can't believe it. I was just going to make one other observation, and far be it from me to speak to you, but I'm a 20-year convert, and for those of us who were raised in one faith tradition and then converted to Catholicism, this whole question of, you know, what's, what's one view of the world versus the other, I, I agree with that, and I've learned a lot from it because I don't believe that cradle Catholics and converts necessarily see everything quite on point. See, I think most cradle Catholics don't see because they take so much for granted. And what they do see, in my mind, is too politicized. That they've missed a whole... That the danger for a cradle Catholic is that you can assume your faith and take it for granted while you get caught up in other things in the world that actually undermine your faith. I mean, if you take seriously what we've been doing together, I'm, there, there are a number of people in the evening class who are standing there, converts, um, and who, who, who trouble over these things a lot. But, I mean, they're actually converted. But I think everybody there, and so many of the people have said over and over again, I'm thinking of a, one guy said to me, for example, um, Catholic education taught me uh, what to think and how to think, but never why, and you're doing that. How many people can, who go through, if you think about education generally, Catholic or not, how many people receive the kind of education you would hope they would, particularly in our culture today? If you're growing up a young Catholic, let's say you're even in the most orthodox of circumstances, will those kids get what will really nurture their faith? I, I myself seriously question that. You know, it should, Education is so hard to do well any culture, inside the Catholic world or out, um, there, there's, there's so much at the center of our faith that I think lots of Catholics have never been given. Just because of what, you know, the disorders in education and the way catechism is presented and, you know. Um, <coughs> Did you want to say something? Well, I've taught in both Catholic school and public school, and I don't see much difference. Between them? Right. Yeah. <coughs> Other than the fact that you got a religion class. Right. Right. Which you know, is a little bit bizarre. Yeah. I was, I mean, my own appraisement, I'd say that's always been generally true. The thing that disturbs me now, and I'll just put it as a question because of what you said, is how much of what's going on in education today is indoctrinating? I mean, we get these pieces in the news where some kid is being asked to sign up. What, what's that example, Doc, of the kid about bisex or sexual or you couldn't use a name to show a sex or he or she or... It. Yeah. The, what was... It was a public school that said that um, gender-specific pronouns were forbidden to teachers. Wow. The education becomes so politicized recently. Yeah. It's just. Just a quick, uh, we're going to be reading Scarlet Letter 
and two things up front. One is um, Hawthorne was writing at the time of Melville, and to try to put that in perspective, those of you who've done Melville, you know my understanding of Melville that I think Moby Dick is one of the most prophetic books of the 19th century. And if, for those of you who haven't read it, or for those of you who have just a quick reminder, remember Ahab is the tragic figure. He's carrying the tragic line of action in that, in that story. He is humiliated um, with the fact that his life could be predetermined, that he could exist as a human being and know that it didn't matter what his will was, it was already foreordained. That's absolute Calvinistic. So in one sense, my claim is that Melville's exercising that demon, that this notion of predestination, predetermination is inhuman. Ahab is outraged at that, number one. The, the second thing to, to think about in relation to that book is, the, is remember, he's wounded by a whale, a whale. But his belief is that nature, following Calvin um, and Luther, is corrupted that the effects of the fall were complete. I've been harping on that forever. So their outlook on nature is that nature is corrupt. And what Melville's doing is exploring the metaphysical sources of that. If nature's corrupt, it had, if it's evil, inherently evil, as man is, man's inherently evil, is depraved, who, where did that come from? If God was the creator of all things, it means there had to be something inherently evil in God. That's the problem with Calvin's, something a little bit with Luther. How could a good God produce something evil? Um, so, you remember those lines in, in Moby Dick where Ahab is going, talking about that pasteboard mask. I want to reach through and strike at that source of malice. Because for him, it's not just in nature, it has, a, it has an origin. So what it does for him is increase the intensities of his wounds. And I suggested then, one of the, one of the great things that Melville's dealing with is that, like Anthony Cleopatra, um, that um, all of us have inherited wounds from our lives. Our parents, our grandparents, people around us, our children will inherit wounds from us. The wounds are a part of our lives. But in that, given the theology, the nature of those wounds are terribly deepened because they have a metaphysical source. So he wants to get back at that wound. It's just like Caesar, or Pompey, wanting to get vengeance for the death of his father. The wounds in the world are with us. So the whole tragic line of Ahab, of Moby Dick, as, as it's carried forward in Ahab, is Calvinistic. This notion of predestination and suffering. And you remember, we've talked about this, when they set out to sea, remember Melville's exploring the, the New England Protestant world in the beginning of that book? They set out to sea in order to look at the metaphysical underpinning of that Protestant world. When they go out to sea, um, shortly after that, Ahab calls the entire crew together and asks them to join him on his quest. That quest is to get back at Moby Dick. And Ahab, Ishmael said, I raised my voices louder than any of them. What we're watching is people played by somebody because of the wounds they all share. Now how American is that? How universal is that? That we all grow up with wounds and there's something in us that would like to get back at them. 
So the whole quest of Moby Dick is to answer those wounds and their metaphysical source. Okay? Ishmael is the one who, who cried the loudest. Remember, he starts, he says, when I start bringing up funeral lines and want to shoot somebody, it's time to get to see. But you remember in the story that over and over and over again, very slowly, he starts dissociating himself from that quest. He learns to love. The, the squishing, the squid, remember when he was squishing hands with everybody, you know, he's, you know, he's overcome with love. It's just wonderful to watch the stages of peripeties, of turns. So that what Melville is doing, and the people, God, people write, write books saying Melville's quarrel with God. God. If you look at the book, you see that its form is Ishmaelian. Ishmael's the one who tells it. He's the one at the end who comes back to tell it. He's telling a story about Ahab's tragic view. But the overriding form of Moby Dick is comic. It's purgatorial comic. It's answering suffering. Ishmael is the only one to survive. That's a sacred act. The gods are involved. It's the Jonah story. He's come back to tell the Ninevites this story for them to learn about the bad things in America and I think to renew our sense that nature is good because that's what Ishmael sees. That's the whole nature of that vision. So it, what, what Melville is doing is critiquing American Protestantism. He's a Protestant. He's not a Catholic. He's a Protestant. Grew up a New England Protestant. But he's taking a look at that world and laying it bare so that we can see some of its problems. That's Melville. Hawthorne is doing the same thing in Scarlet Letter, very, very different way. He's taking his subject, love and sex, and he's looking at them in terms of the theologies that affect them. And there's two theologies. Now, let me just quickly go back. Remember, um, Henry broke off from Rome, and he made himself the head of the church. He set a precedent making it possible for anybody who followed to make the national interest greater than the unity of the faith. It fragmented the faith. And what begins to happen is, you, you know from the Reformation, because of Calvin and Luther and um, um, Wycliffe and the others, that there, there are these beliefs that the sacraments are not sacramental, that there are these corruptions in the church, and, and there's generally a dismissal of the sacraments in, in underneath the Anglican and Episcopal churches, anyway. Um, and that the Protestant world begins to fragment, break apart, and down into these sects. So that's behind us. The Puritans are a group of reformers who are very much influenced by Calvin, who believed that the Anglicans and Presbyterians did not go far enough in their reforms of the Catholic Church. They believed the sacraments were not sacramental, vestments, the sacred orders, things like that. They didn't believe in those. So in order to practice their belief, they left England where they were persecuted with the Catholics and Puritans were really the most persecuted groups. They left, the Puritans went to Netherlands when their efforts at creating a regime there failed, they went to America. So that's 1620, in 1620 the Puritans come and they found um, a new regime, a city on a hill, in an effort to freely worship God. Okay? Almost immediately after their founding, factions broke out. 
And it's really interesting to see the nature of them. And Hutchinson, by the way, one of the values of what Hawthorne's doing here is he constantly locates himself in historical facts. That's his way of, of doing something that I'll get to in a minute. But remember that historical facts are strewn through the whole book. One of the more important is Anne Hutchinson. Um, early, in the, early in the history of our colony, the colony um, developed itself as a theocracy. Its laws were God's laws. Okay? And I'm trusting you all know the difficulty. It's like Islam. Because if you violate a law, that is, there, hold on, let me go, so I'm not assuming anything here. We know from a long Catholic tradition that goes back to Plato and Aristotle, there's such a thing that we call natural law. It's rooted in God's law, but you can grasp it with reason. So we can know the rational basis of things without Christ coming into it. So you have Plato and Aristotle laying out these extraordinary arguments in the politics, arts, metaphysics, physics, science. Reason has this tremendous capacity to penetrate the, the nature of the world so we can see without the help of grace. So there's this natural law tradition. We make a distinction between the, the laws that belong to the natural order and those laws from God. And according to our faith, they come together. That's why faith and reason are important to come together. Okay? When the Protestants broke off, they made reason corrupt. It was depraved. The basis of their relationship to God was fide, sola fide, faith alone. Okay? So in the very outset of the founding, the groups broke off and the fighting was serious. And it was generally between a small group of people who, who believed in faith only, what was called free grace. Anne Hutchinson was one of them. She believed it was absolutely essential that you live according to the Holy Spirit. And if you did, it placed you above the laws. So the majority of the Puritans looked at her as an antinomian against the law, antinomian. They believed that faith was highest, like her, but they also believed that your faith was made evident by the works that you did. So the evidence of your commitment to that faith was joining the church and following its laws. So you've got two groups. Is that clear? Because it's fundamental. I don't want to over. I, I don't want to go on because if you don't see the divisions there, you're not going to see something fundamental to our American character. Is that clear? Free grace and works, and it's ironic because you know how much the Protestant mind looked down on works of Catholics, because they saw works as an effort for Catholics to buy God off. If I only do this, God will like me and I'll go to heaven. The Catholic doesn't believe that, but he does believe in the good of, of works. So you've got two groups, both Protestant, one believing in faith um, alone, um, without any orientation, in a sense, bearing or obligation to the natural order. That's why she was called antinomian, anti-law. If you've read, you go on Wikipedia and read. It's sad to. I mean, I just, I, I just, you know, glanced over it the other day. It's just sad. I couldn't read that without thinking of what happened with Kavanaugh in her hearings here. To watch what they did with her was so humiliating. It just, I mean, it was just humiliating. What the magistrates, you know, the other did to, did to her because of her beliefs, it was, it just, it broke my heart to watch what they did. Anyway, the, there was this breaking. Faith by itself, 
makes us followers of the Holy Spirit. So it becomes absolutely private because who could, this is Hamlet, who can enter into that world? How do you approach it? How do you question it? How do you hold anybody accountable? You're above the law. You, you can do whatever you, this is, this is the problem of Hamlet. That's why those of you, you should see it. Once you enter into that private world and you're no longer related to the natural world, by what standards do you measure what that person does? You're above everybody else. She was exiled. That was her punishment. She was imprisoned and finally exiled. The other groups, the majority of the Protestants, believed in faith alone and scripture, but the evidence of that faith was the works that you did. And the most important piece of evidence was joining the church and abiding by its codes. So the sacraments are gone. The priestly order is gone. It's a theocracy. Okay? And that meant following those laws was absolutely crucial because if anybody stepped outside of them, it was a sign that you were among the unregenerated, the damned. Now the belief at the center of this Protestant world is Calvinistic, that all people are predestined to salvation or damnation. So the beginnings of our America, in, in so far as that's our beginning, are black-white. Faith is true for both of them, but in one order, faith elevates you above any accountability in the world. You're not, you can continue to do what you want. You're not held to the laws. And the other, absolute conformity is crucial because if you don't, it's signed that you're among the damned. When, when the play, when the novel opens, Hel, um, Hester has been in prison, gave birth to a child because she committed sex with somebody apparently outside of marriage. And that's a sign that she's among the damned. So the play opens with this young woman who is ostracized, isolated from the community on the basis of its religious beliefs. When she comes out of the prison, you remember the responses, particularly the women. I mean, they're catty and mean and, and, and in a sense, true to what they believe. She's a symbol of sin. She belongs among the damned. She's outside the community. So these notions, these are the beginnings, this black-white way of looking at the world is crucial. And notice that Melville's focus, Hawthorne's focus, to me is so amazing. It's sex, God, Think about abortion today. It's sex and giving birth to a child. And the, and the attitude that this community has towards this woman because that, that conception took place outside the law, outside of marriage. It doesn't have the sanctity. So there's, not, there's no distinction between the natural law and religious law. They don't dovetail. It is a theocracy. When you break God's laws, it's a serious thing. Where does the whole concept of the witchcraft fit in those two? Where does witchcraft fit in there? Because clearly that was, you know, if you've been to Salem, the custom house is a block away from the, the witch cemetery and the place where the Salem witch trials took place. That to me is a third element and I'm not quite sure where that fits in. Can anybody, I've got a thought, but can, does anybody know this better than I do to give an answer? I'll give a, a superficial thought. Can you repeat the question? <laughs> he wants to know how the witch, the witch trials, the witch... Well, uh, there's a, there are characters in the novel, or at least the one... one Higgins. 
talks yeah. about the meetings at night in right. the forest, right. so that it's in the novel. Too. I don't, I don't, I've not studied it, Jay, but let me just offer this, that, that my assumption, and I may be, I may be really wrong here, but, because I don't know the history, I haven't looked into them, but my assumption would be that witches would be associated with the dark forces, particularly of nature, they go off into the forest. It's one of the, going to be one of the problems in this novel because late in the novel, Dimsdale and, and, and Hester are going to return to the forest. It's going to be their first meeting, and it's going to be a really, and it, outside the civil world in the forest. And Pearl, their child, is looked at as a creature of nature. Because nature in this world would be unregenerate. But witches would, would be persecuted because they would, they would be heretical, they would be assuming the powers of God to work evil in the world. So they'd be a threat to everything the community stood for. Now, what the evidence was for persecuting those women, you know, claiming that they were witches, I don't know because I've not looked into them, but that to me would be the principle. I may be wrong in that, but I, I think it's, it's probably what happened. How they applied it, what evidence they used to persecute and, and kill those women, I don't know. But it, what I want to do is just, we're back with Melville in the 19th century. We're 150 years away from our founding. Both of them have reached a point of seeing something wrong with the American founding, and both of them are going to it. In Melville, it's wounds, it's this attitude towards nature. In, Faulk, or, sorry, in Melville, Hawthorne, um, it, it's this attitude towards nature, but more importantly, sex giving birth, and laws themselves, the nature of them. Because in, in Scarlet Letter, the laws are severe, condemning. Marriage is a serious thing. You know, she's bringing life into the world. It's con in, in, the, in the mind of the community, um, it was a marriage conceived, in, or a, a, a child conceived in sin. So it goes right to the heart of their theology. So in both of those books, in my mind, we're dealing with with books, both of them Protestant. Hawthorne was Protestant, Melville was. But from what I know, both of them left their Protestant worlds. Hawthorne is clearly distancing himself. The, the amazing thing about Hawthorne, both of them, and Hawthorne does acknowledge this openly, he absolutely identifies with his forebears. But he also sees himself as a means of atoning for their sins. He's like a, he's like, he's like a Christ figure. I'll read a passage in the Custom House. He, he's, He's in his, he says explicitly, he's taking on their sins and trying to do something with them. So in that sense, he's like the poet from beginning, that every epic poet, remember, was carrying the burdens of his past, carrying them forward, trying to redeem them as he went. My claim about Scarlet Letter is that's what Hawthorne's doing here. I'm going to stop. I, I wanted to go into it. Let me just say this about the Custom House, um, and then we'll pick up when we meet next week. The Custom House looks like it doesn't belong to the... Wait, oh, I've got to define a term. Sorry. I've got to define a term. Um, what's it called? Um, exegetical. Exegetical. Um, um, ha 
this is really important. It seems literary, but it's more than literary. Hawthorne's writing what he calls a romance. And I used this the other night, and one of the guys was offended because he thinks about romance as having to do with a romance between a man and a woman. Romance, in, in Hawthorne's terms, has to do with things that are improbable. Even maybe sacramental, but certainly improbable, miraculous. They're romantic. They belong to another realm. So just hold that in your mind. When you read the custom house scene, pay close attention to those scenes where he's describing the effect of a mirror and a firelight or a moonbeam. Because he makes the point that when you look at something under the light of a moonbeam or a fire, it changes the nature of it. And he says, if a man can't write romances in that atmosphere, he's, his soul is dead. What he's saying is, it's in, in a romance, we enter into a world beyond the natural world. Now this is crucial, absolutely crucial, because remember, most of the reading public condemned Melville because they thought what he was writing was stupid and unreal, improbable. Most of the people reading Hawthorne condemned him. These things don't happen. So we're entering a world of what literary people call, Shakespeare's later plays were called romances because he's dealing with sacramental things beyond nature. So, remember, at the time that Hawthorne and Melville were writing, all of Europe had been writing naturalistic novels for 200 years. Defoe, well, Defoe, Defoe, Austin, Dickens, Thackeray, you can go on and on. Does anything romantic enter there? Sometimes in Dickens. But we're in a naturalistic world. In America, the writers are naturalistic. They're writing in a way that conforms to nature as it appears to our senses. Strange, miraculous things don't occur. In Melville, they do. They've got a whale that seems to be chasing people. In Hawthorne, we do too. So we're entering a world of improbable things, strange things. And Hawthorne and Melville both knew that what they were writing would not be accepted by a public. It would be rejected. They had to find ways of answering that. Because remember, here's the crisis mid-19th century. Two worldviews are in conflict. You've got a scientific worldview that's been underway for centuries and a religious view, and both of them are in collision. That was one of the great themes of Moby Dick. Two worldviews, two ways of reading the world, and they're radically different. Somebody in a biblical world is going to see things in a way different from somebody looking through scientific eyes. The problem for both of them was to reconcile those two worldviews. Melville did it in Moby Dick. We have to ask whether Hawthorne's doing it here. But Hawthorne's writing this knowing that the whole literary tradition is naturalistic, that what he's doing doesn't fit. And interestingly, I've said this, it's, it is peculiarly American. Europe isn't doing this. America's doing it because Americans' founding is religious. The seeds of our country are deeply religious. That's our founding, that's our character. Deeply, absolutely, to our core, we are a religious people. So why does Hawthorne write the Custom House? Because what he does in the Custom House is take us back to a political setting where nothing strange goes on until the end when he goes up into that room and opens that packet and he puts that red cloth on his heart and it burns him. And, he, and he's making really clear, he said, don't doubt me on this. I'm telling you the absolute truth. So on the, on the edge, uh, towards the end of the custom house, 
world in, which has been completely naturalistic, something strange happens, and it's it, shortly after that the Scarlet Letter begins with Hester being brought out of jail with the Scarlet Letter on her breast. She's going to be stigmatized, isolated from, from her community because of her sin. This story is about a community holding faithful to its religious beliefs and Hawthorne doing something to answer it. What does he do? And I'm going to claim, as with Moby Dick and all the epics we've been reading, what he's doing is refounding America. How's that for a grandiose claim? I'm serious. Wait, does everybody understand? He's going back to our founding. He's laying out the founding. He's focusing on the most essential aspect of our nature, sexual, lawful, faithful, those issues. That's his focus. But he's taking us back to a time where these, the beliefs of these people have isolated this woman. And by the way, if those of you who've read it, you already know, she becomes the means of, he, all the people, all the women, particularly the women, go to her for help. Her isolation gives her, it's like the poet, her isolation gives her a view on people and a sympathy with them that the people in the community do not have. The sacraments are gone. There's no confession. There's no Eucharist. They're gone. These people who are living this way are suffering from something. They have no way of dealing with it. Who do they go to? Hester. So to pick up this theme that we've been dealing with for the last six months, <laughs> All of the writers that we've been re dealing with Shakespeare in the last four or five plays, and now uh, Hawthorne, men are scumbags. Women are doing these <laughs> women are doing these amazing things. Anyway, that's where we are. So, read the Custom House. It's a it's don't pass it off because it it just it's seems it's very boring. And, yeah. And repetition. Yes. I couldn't. Have. Stay awake with it. You go back and reread that. That's my assignment to you. No, I didn't get to the end of it. I, I, oh, I was intrigued by the fact that the uh, in the United States history, the custom house jobs were the most prime political plums you could get. And he describes himself as the only non-political person to ever get a customs house job. And then a few pages he later, he yes. gets fired. He's the first one fired when a new president gets The whole thing is a parody. It's a self-parody and it's a parody. Because if you, if, I'm not gonna, if you read the book, you, there's only one thing the men in that place do. They, or sorry, they eat, they eat and sleep. That's all they do. They don't work. It's a wonderful parody of, of and by, by the way, here, I should have asked it. What's the difference between the people in the custom house, because he parodies them all, and the first founders? What's happened between that founding and the custom house? Something's changed, because these men don't do anything but eat and sleep. They couldn't be more different from the founders. What's happened? What's going on? Are we going to see you again? Yeah, okay. I don't leave till January. I, didn't, I forgot when you're leaving. January 3rd. Okay. So we have at least next week and probably two weeks. Yeah. yeah. We should 20th. be able to. We should be able to do the. Or I mean the scarlet letter then. I'll keep reading it again. No, but I hope. I hope. I hope we're together. <laughs> you're. Uh, while we do it. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know.